This is Thomas DePoe. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. We're joined tonight on The Green Box by none other than Adam Scott Glancy, a man whose name is synonymous with Delta Green and who surely needs no introduction. Is there a scenario in Horrors of War that is about a, um, a temple of Sathagwa that a serpent man is trying to get the, the, the Cornish miners to dig to? Yes, there is. I, I listened to an actual... That was the first actual play I ever listened to that was, was one like... Oh, really? Many, many, many years ago. Yeah, it was the very first time, it was the second time actually that I rolled out a scenario for the, uh, as a test dr- uh, drive for the uh, collection. The first one was a very unsuccessful test run of uh, the last flight of the L-58, which is all set on the Zeppelin. And it was not successful. There was too much front-loading information. The players weren't going to remember that for a four-hour, five-hour con game. And what I had to do in later playtests was just simply say, Okay, this is how Zeppelin works, I know. And the keeper needs to know as much as they care to know, as much as they care to know to make it fun or interesting. So when the players say things like, you know, uh, we've got a monster on the Zeppelin, how do we get rid of it? I know, let's take the Zeppelin up to a really high altitude and then it'll suffocate, you know, from the lack of oxygen. And we'll use our uh, oxygen, uh, what they called bombs back then rather than tanks. To, to survive, or they decide they want to try and land the Zeppelin. We'll just land and get off, you know, and I have to explain that the, the, here are the hazards of landing, uh, and, you know, here are the, and, and you know, most of all, I guess one of the big things about Zeppelins is we should think of them like a submarine for the air. There's a captain who says left three degrees, right three degrees, up, up rudders, down rudders, right? But there's a guy who actually has to obey that order. When it comes to the engines, you use an engine telegraph. You use that big handle that says half speed, full speed, you know. But you've got one of those for every engine on the ship and in the gondolas. So as the crew is being, as as various parts of the ship become, you know, uh, more dangerous and people are afraid to stay at their post, isolated, monitoring an engine. Because the engine's not like an engine in an airplane where it's just in front of you, you know, and there you are in the cockpit. Um, the engines on these things have guys around them like the engines on a submarine, you know, how they're moving around it and oiling it and keeping it running uh, at full speed or whatever. Um, and I just thought, you know, what I needed to do is just as the situation got more and more desperate, uh, bring up the technical limitations of their environment, you know, like um, the, the terrible fact that uh, uh, the fuel has to be transferred from the fuel tanks in the airship down to the engines. And if people stop pumping fuel, manually pumping fuel from the tanks uh, into the engines, the engines will sputter out and then the ship is at the mercy of the winds. And now you're 10,000 feet in the air with a monster on your airship and no way to direct the airship, right? Um, So that was sort of the, the things that, I mean, I, I wanted to make sure the players ran into these limitations of their environment. So the environment became problematic. Blazing away with pistols around the hydrogen cells isn't the best idea. Oh, the humanity. Yeah, but it's not as bad as people think. 
let's say you punch a hole in a hydrogen cell. Well, um, you're walking along the what they call the uh, keel at the bottom of an airship. You know, the, the very bottom is where the only part the crew is really in. The rest of it's all giant airbags. If you put a hole in that, what does hydrogen do? It's lighter than air. It goes up. So in the keel, you light a match, you fire a gun. It's not that dangerous, but heaven forbid you've put a lot of holes in the gas cylinders and you're on the dorsal surface of the airship. Now, technically outside, you know, uh, you think you'd be safer out there, but if all that hydrogen is seeping up through the uh, canvas and uh, through the netting, then, you know, you could fire a gun up there and there's your chain reaction uh, that's going to blow the airship up. I never had anybody blow up the airship. I was kind of disappointed. They were all appropriately respectful of the million plus cubic feet of hydrogen that they were standing directly beneath. With that beautiful introduction, and I say that being 100% serious because uh, airship explosions are very near and dear to the hearts of certain members of this of this uh, podcast. Oh, um, did, did somebody did somebody play Walker in the Wastes back in the day? No, I think they just have an affection for bags Exploding of burning airships. gas. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. Any so of us is actually old enough to have played Walker in the Wastes back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. I suddenly feel very old. <laughs> I've run beyond the mountains of madness, but that's the other pole. That's but that one's that one's got an airship in it too, and it does yes. And you're not supposed to blow it up, but you're 100 percent supposed to massacre the crew. <laughs> we didn't do when we played it. Yeah, that's right. We just made friends with them. See, I tried to find a copy of Walker of the Waste, and they're not sold anywhere. I want to say there was a copy of it at um, a used bookstore that I was at, but it was like forty dollars. And I don't play. I don't play that much Call of Cthulhu or really any at all. They're about as rare as uh, trying to find the Golden Dawn. Ah, shit. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Uh, so, for those of you just joining us on this podcast that's not live, um, we're talking with Adam Scott Glancy of, of uh, Arc Dream and other assorted um, commercial entities. We could do a, a quick introduction. Uh, I think you just did it. Um, Scott, Scott, Scott Glancy, once upon a time pagan publishing, mostly now working for Arc Dream. Um, one of the writers on Delta Green uh, way back in 1990. Six, I guess, was when we were first, I think, had a, a final assembled manuscript ready to go. Yeah, so you're right. I went to start at junior high. I was four years old. Good God. <laughs> I was in, I was in, uh, this was a lot. Well, I was in law, I was in law school, and then I, when we started working on it, and then uh, was out and uh, actually practicing. Um, Adam Scott Glancy, JD. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a prosecutor at the time, so I literally, for my vacation to go to my very first Gen Con, left the courthouse um, with my luggage in my suit and flew to Gen Con, and the very first two people I, I ran into there, uh, this is back when it was in Milwaukee, was uh, John Scott Tynes, who was running uh, Pick and Publishing at the time, and uh, I mean, I'd talked to him, but I'd never met him in person. We talked on the phone and, you know, emailed or whatever, but met him finally for the first time because we were premiering Delta Green at uh, Gen Con and uh, Nicole Lindrus from Green Laronin Publishing. Um, and uh, they're drinking in a bar and uh, joined them immediately and decided this, this seems like an environment I would thrive in. You've been drinking at Gen Con ever since. That's the yep. legend was born. It's great because um, 
we've got two people on this podcast who are either law enforcement or former law enforcement as well. But a uh, question for the for for you: um, What was the scenario that you ran to premiere? Delta Green would it be anything we'd recognize. I think the public's first taste was John Tynes's uh, scenario from the very first Delta. Well, from the Unspeakable Oath. I mean, uh, it was the one oh, that was originally. In the, yeah, Convergence was the very first thing that we, and that was always a you know a good one to run at cons because it's it's lethal. Um, yeah, it has a bullshit no, instant kill at the end. It's very, very lethal. I mean, it's no Dennis Detweiler scenario, but it's pretty damn yeah. lethal. Um, I am, uh, by comparison, a big old softy. Um, I uh, am perfectly willing to let the players uh, only die because they made mistakes. Dennis Detweiler will kill you in a scenario because your player character showed up to participate in the scenario. That is... <laughs> That I'm glad, I'm glad that the killed. stereotypes about his work have probably begun with the people who work with him. Mm-hmm. But speaking mm-hmm. of speaking of people's work, just because we, we we do this with every with every member of the team we bring on, which pieces of Delta Green um, of the new one or the old one uh, are you responsible for? Both scenarios, but also uh, parts of the rules text. Just um, a quick the, overview, whichever parts you're the you're rules. I, I didn't have about. anything. I didn't have anything to do with the rules in the new set. I was uh, I, all I did was look at the stuff that was completed and go, "Boy, this looks good." I mean, that's it. I don't think I um, added anything significant unnecessarily into the rules. Um, in the first book, I was in charge of uh, writing the history of Delta Green. Um, John handled the high-level concept stuff about what Delta Green should be for the game. Um, but I wrote all the fiddly bits. I wrote all the NPCs for Delta Green, uh, the timeline for Delta Green. Um, sort of the same thing happened with Majestic 12, uh, except Dennis wrote a lot of the... Uh, he, Dennis did some great work on the conceptualization of the Nego as alien thinkers and alien uh, presence. Um, but again, I did all the... Uh, I think I did all the NPCs. Um, and the timeline and the history of it. Uh, John uh, had set me up with a bunch of uh, genuine UFOlogy conspiracy stuff that I was able to read. Well, that, thank you for that, by the way, because I love stuff like, um, like in, in old DG, how um, NRO Delta is like the is like the evil counterpart to Delta Green, and if you look up the lore, like the old UFO conspiracy, it's like they had a they had an armband that was what was a black triangle and a red background. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, you can't, exactly. you can't make this shit. I mean, you can make this shit up because someone it's did make it up. Did, but. Yeah. Well, yeah, we got the same problem with the Karatekia. The Karatekia was all, you know, it, there's a point where I uh, diverged off of the the uh, off of Himmler's interest in the occult and New Age and quack science and quack archaeology, and then you know went and made it into an actual weapons program. But there are a bunch of things that uh, that. Himmler was doing, uh, you know, with guys like Otto Rahm, the the alleged uh, Nazi Indiana Jones, if you've heard people call him that, but and some of these other projects that they were into. But you know, it it starts off based on some stupidity uh, that uh, some some nonsense and some conspiracy nonsense the Nazis are doing, but then we just tack some other you know our own fictional goodies onto it. And I was always happy that people weren't sure where the real 
Nazi nonsense ended and where the, uh, you know, where our fictional Nazi nonsense began. It doesn't hurt that now you've got like all of that is like mainstream on the History Channel and like people are reporting <laughs> that it's like fact. And then you've also got instances. Well, of, I don't know, uh, man. I, I, I'm actually quite bothered by it. I don't know um, uh, how to responsibly. I wonder about response. Is there a responsibility in conspiracy theorizing? I mean, I mean, Stuff that I've written has turned up on UFOlogy pages as real things. I wrote some stuff in Saucer Watch, um, the Saucer Watch section of the first book, where it was about using the great race of Yith and their ability to change minds with people in the present, trying to make that into an aspect of the missing time mythology that exists around UFOs. And I wrote that stuff up, and the case studies I wrote up turned up on some page online being purported to be absolutely real. Kind of like the Julia Child's biography. Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up. Yeah. Um, you know, Delta Green got mentioned in a, uh, a, a biography of Julia Child because she was working for the Office of Strategic Services in the World War II. And somebody did some bad internet research and thought that uh, – Delta Green was a real thing, and it is mentioned in Julia Child's biography now. I think they described it as a uh, psychological warfare unit designed to exploit um, uh, so that That is actually mythology. the that, that Shane yeah. gives it at the beginning of one of the fiction pieces, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good disinformation campaign. So, but now we're currently living in a world where, you know, conspiracy theory is uh, performed on the national stage by the highest ranking politicians in our country where uh, we have conspiracy theories like Jade Helm, right? Back under Obama, where uh, people decided that the Jade Helm military maneuvers that were going on in the American Southwest were really a plot to take over America or dissolve the government of Texas. Uh, guys like the governor of Texas had to tell wild-eyed maniacs, uh, in what you call them, uh, these uh, town hall meetings, well, we'll check into that. Not tell them, are you stupid? You know, no, that's not happening. The Walmarts are not used as concentration camps. Well, well, you know, wait, no. Are you sure? Because now, now you've well, got the, the, the old Walmarts being used to house the, you know, the immigrants down on the border. Well, that's not happening. That's not happening. What you're saying is a conspiracy theory, and that's totally <laughs> not happening. Um, you know, when it, because you know when it when it's been, when it's going to be done to. Let's be honest, white people. That's when you panic. When it's going to be done to some illegals who shouldn't be here anyways and have no business endangering their children by exposing their children to the dangers we're going to expose them to, you can just go right back to sleep on that. Everything's fine. I like I like that we've we've taken the conversation in the direction of atrocities because that's actually something I was going to ask about. <laughs> it seems like a lot of these historical scenarios, because that's something that um, that people people remember your work for, is that it is historical scenarios is very detailed research on um, either things in the past or things in the present that are happening in different parts of the world, like iconoclasts. Is they remember that a lot of times it's about really bad stuff happening. And I thought about that because when we did our episode on how to do historical stuff, one of my pieces of advice was find something really bad that happened because that'll stick in the players' minds and that'll get them invested. Yeah. Like uh, I did a scenario about the DM government's crackdown on the uh, Buddhists right before the U.S. entered the Vietnam War. 
Uh, did you did you by any chance listen to um, Robert Evans uh, behind the bastards? I did not. Okay, there's a it? there's a great podcast called uh, Behind the Bastards done by a guy named Robert Evans, and he just goes through you know picking out people uh, that you should know about who are terrible, and one of them was Norum Sihanouk, uh, the 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 the, pr- the the prince of Cambodia. And I had to admit, I've always thought of Sihanouk as kind of a victim of, you know, uh, American covert operations and, you know, getting, but he's terrible. He's actually quite terrible and did not do anything to uh, slow the Khmer Rouge down and, in fact, does a bunch of things uh, during his career to legitimize the Khmer Rouge taking over Cambodia before the auto-genocide or whatever you want to call it that descends on Cambodia. If you want to find out terrible things, definitely listen to uh, uh, Robert Evans' uh, Behind the Bastards. Uh, It's quite fantastic. Um, He just informed me that, okay, who remembers sea monkeys? I do. Yeah, The little little dots you put in the water. Brine shrimp? Mm -hmm. Brine shrimp, yeah. Have you bought any? Has anyone here bought uh, sea monkeys? No, I just remember there was a Rugrats episode about it when Once I was Once when kid. I was very, very young. Okay. You have supported the Aryan nations. Interesting. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. um, the guy who uh, invented sea monkeys uh, was a nice Jewish fellow from Brighton Beach who, when he grew up and began uh, starting a career of trying to sell animals to children through the mail, he also had a whole thing involving hermit crabs. He then took that money and gave huge amounts of it to the Aryan nations back in the 80s. And the oh 70s. no, he's the Bobby Fisher of sea monkeys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is pretty shocking. Uh, it's it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Uh, that see, And I, I think I bought sea monkeys as a kid too, so some of my money was used to buy guns. Is this, uh, is this so? Is like this is this is this is still happening then? Because I don't think no, sea no, monkeys are like a fad anymore. He's dead, and the sea monkeys have been sold to another company. But Evans had some great material from some uh, reporters who went to this new company, you know, Fun Incorporated, and you know wanted to ask them. So, this guy you sold the sea monkey, you bought the sea monkeys from, you know that he's a weird you know nazi right and they're like let's not get into who invented sea monkeys you know let's just understand how much fun they bring to children you know and that was sort of their answer on it like don't ask about the fanta right or ibm yeah exactly um so um you can robert's a good source for terrible things uh throughout history um, you know, which is quite so. He, I, I highly recommend him for stuff. Um, Just to know we're not sponsored by that podcast, but uh, no, I had never heard of it until now. But you know how to email us if you want to uh, sponsor us. Link, link oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Greenbox sponsored by Atrocities, <laughs> Trademark. <laughs> They'll take sponsors from anyone except maybe the Koch brothers, but even then, you know, I mean, talk about atrocities, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you sponsor the show if you've been on it? Well, excuse me, Coke Brothers singular? No, oh, good point. Ooh. I mean, I'm presuming it's singular. For all I know, they've got the other one's head in a jar bobbing around in some of that fluid people keep well, going in. They could be doing whatever they did to Strom Thurmond to keep him alive 20 years after he died. It could be the same thing. <laughs> or like Venture Brothers style, they just thaw out another one. Ugh. Well, you know, and you never know. There's a marvelous 
And because of Robert Evans stuff, I now have information about the marvelous Nazi connections to the Koch brothers. They had a German au pair who uh, raised them, who apparently left their um, left their home, stopped being their au pair to go back to Germany because things were looking so rosy under Hitler. Now I, I don't realize the Koch brothers are that old. I, I yeah yeah well that's why they're dying now. Um, they were they were, you know, young children in the forties, you know, and uh, you know maybe my father's or my mom's age. Um, but yes, uh, I can only hope that her she you know at some point of going back to Germany, Nazi Germany, uh, to be you know uh, with the Fuhrer. I'm just hoping at some point she realized she had made a terrible mistake. You know, like when you know, the Red Army is hoving into view or something. Gee, that's, that's a lot of T-34s. Hmm. Maybe I should have kept changing the diapers on those two horrible children back in America. But, oh, well, live and learn. Uh, but anyways, yes, atrocities are kind of the, the bread and butter uh, of coming up with scenarios for Call of Cthulhu. You know? That's our episode title right there. I'm curious. Um, it came up uh, in our own discussions earlier. Um, like, where do you see the line between, like, in a historical scenario, between you know, cheap shots trotting on the graves of you know, war graves, and then you know, uh, something that allows people to step back in time and kind of appreciate horror? Like, where is that line between tasteful mm. and not tasteful? That's that came up during Iconoclast. Right. I mean, I think it came up during as it would. Operation Obsidian because the name of the demon there, Anga, is also the name that the Khmer Rouge gave itself. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, the uh, I mean, certainly we 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 didn't connect the mythos to the Holocaust. You know, it's not that the, the, the people were not being selected based on where the last uh, Jewish woman was in their family history to be exterminated. You know. By all the rules that came up at the Wanaset conference. That wasn't happening because Yag Sadath said so. There were, once there's that much death going on in any given area, mythos things will be attracted to it. You know? So you're saying it, mythos shouldn't be behind the atrocity, however, it could be like a it's, it's opportunistic. It's, 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 it's like the ghouls, of it. the ghouls eating the dead yeah, people that stolen and killed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, there's a ghoul cult that worships Stalin because he was generating so many corpses. Uh, certainly something similar could happen in World War I where the ghouls see the war itself as an expression of Mordigian. Right? So one of, the, one of the Deep One clans that I wrote for my big fat Deep One wedding is descendants of the, um, the sacrifices offered by the Karatekia. Because the Deep Ones aren't mm -hmm. interested in like eating people like ghouls. It's like, no, we want we're nope. interested in a long-term partnership. So because, and because those were women, those deep ones are now um, by rabbinic law, Jewish. Yep. And they uh, might drag some of their, they might drag some of the human culture. They're going to apply them. Talmudic law to the worship of Cthulhu. They're going to get real, you know, <laughs> just elbow deep in that, that Torah scholarship. The one thing that I had to do with that conoclast, that was really kind of a, it was sort of a, a weird big deal was the Yazidis. Um, the scenario is set in, in ISIS-controlled Iraq, and the Yazidis in that area around Mosul were getting just the worst of it, okay? Yeah. Um, I had a friend, uh, oh, an acquaintance, who served in Mosul um, back during the time when 
David Petraeus was up there with, I guess it's the 101st Air Assault uh, Division. But this guy Ewan was a uh, medic. And he, you know, was a you know Lovecraft, he'd read Lovecraft. So he knows that the Yazidis are all over the story of the horror at Red Hook. They worship um, what's her name, the um, the Hecate Gorgo Thousand Face yeah. Moon. Yeah, Gorgo and Morgo Thousand Face Moon. Which is a super weird association because, like, there's not that many Yazidis in the world, and well, there's a book uh, that I think both Lovecraft and Bob Howard may have read. Um, let me see if I can find it here. It's written by this. Um, guy who did travel log in the 1920s and 30s. He was a uh, uh, sort of a uh, sort of a hack writer. Um, but he's uh, he wrote a story, he wrote a book called The Magic Island which was him going to Haiti and exposing the truth behind you know, voodoo. And after his book came out, that was sort of the moment when America was first exposed to the concept of voodoo and the concept of the zombie. It's after that book you get things like the film White Zombie and I Walk with a Zombie. Some of that stuff in the uh, 30s before the Hayes Code. But he wrote a book called Among the Bedouins, Dervishes, and Devil Worshippers of Arabia. And he went on a tour of Lebanon, uh, Cairo, and I think Iraq. And he wrote this big thing where he describes the Yazidis as devil worshippers. And in um, both Robert E. Harris Conan material, he has this one empire where they name drop uh, certain Yazidi concepts um, about Malatus, the uh, peacock angel. And I think Howard may have read the exact same sort of travelogue book and picked up this idea that the Yazidis are devil worshippers. And that is certainly how their neighbors treat them, um, because the Yazidis have some sort of religion based on an amalgamation of uh, uh, monotheistic Islam and pre-Islamic uh, pre-Islamic. Uh, uh, they have sort of a real feel of like those old like Gnostic cults around the time of really early Christianity, where you believe that that Jesus was coming back any day now, and so you should not get attached to the material world. And um, one of the things that they've got going on is sort of is very close to the demiurge. Uh, in their mythology, Satan is a lot like Prometheus. He created the the world. He was created by God, and he created our this, this shithole planet. Well, that's the demiurge. Um, he's more like uh, Prometheus in that he, he gave us the knowledge of good and evil, right? And you know, like the apple is the knowledge of good and evil. The snake and stuff. Prometheus gives fire to mankind and then chained to a rock by Zeus to have his liver pecked out every day. Well, apparently the ladies have this very amalgam of sort of, I don't know, Mediterranean-style polytheism and uh, a little um, monotheism slathered over it from the Abrahamic side of the street. The result is, is that they are absolutely hated uh, by the uh, Sunni and Shiite Arabs in the region. They are, yeah, that's it, William Seabrook. Finally figured out the guy's name. So William Seabrook wrote the Magic Island uh, story about being called Asylum, where he was locked up in an insane asylum for being an alcoholic. 
Um, there's uh, some book about I can't Jungle Ways, I think, where he was supposed to. His assignment was to go to Africa and find cannibals and eat human flesh, but he failed. Like the uh, Africans kept selling him bush meat, like monkeys and stuff, because they were going to get involved with some crazy out of town white man who says, "Where are your cannibals at?" And they're like, "Yeah, sure, buddy, they're right over here." You know, what what can we sell you? You know, uh, what what monkey parts can we sell you and tell you that they're really parts of people? Um, but Seabrook was. And he's got Call of Cthulhu Investigator written all over him if you look at his history, especially the bouts in the asylum and the alcoholism. Um, but uh, I think this book, uh, Amongst the Dervishes, uh, and uh, the Dervishes, uh, uh, Druze, and uh, Yazidi Devil Worshippers, I think both Howard and um, uh, uh, Robert E. Howard and Lovecraft both had access to it because his depiction of the Yazidis is right out of the book which is again mostly just blood libel sort of you know it's like it, except instead of being christian blood libel against jews it's it's uh it's sunni arab blood libel against yazidis and to, um to, to bring it back you said that that you had, you had known a, a person who had had an, encountered this group in mosul oh yeah previously yeah and 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 when he talked to people he's working in a hospital right so people are doctors and medical technicians and they're radiologists and and he'd say things like you know people would say oh the Yazidis they have tails because they had a Yazidi working in the in the hospital and uh, the guys you know and and he would ask you and ask the uh, the Sunnis well you don't really think he has a tail oh yeah he has a tail he is uh, he is beloved of Shaitan he's got a tail and is of the devil and he'd ask the doctors you know. So the radiology, the radiological tech says that, uh, you know, Malik uh, is uh, of Shaitan and has a tail. Is that true? And the doctor would say, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> he doesn't have a tail. He has a metaphorical tail. Uh, <laughs> just, but he is of Shaitan and he is, you know. And, and so the Yazidis shunned. And Ewan told this story about how people were getting their teeth pulled in this hospital as part of a free medical service that the army was offering, right? You know, you can come and get dental work done. And uh, one of the guys he, he knew and had talked to who had expressed some uh, doubt about uh, the godliness of the Yazidis had, his, had a tooth pulled, and then he came back and said, hey, I need to get that tooth back. And Ewan was like, well, I'm sorry, I gave it to Malik the Yazidi. And the man whose tooth had been pulled dropped, you know, to a wider shade of pale uh, to hear that a piece of his body was now in the possession of a devil-worshipping Yazidi. It wasn't a joke. It was serious. You have to get that tooth back. I can't, I can't do it myself. He has it. If he sees me, he'll have power over me. You have to go do it, you know. And so, you know, I think Ewan just got a different tooth out. He never gave the tooth to anybody. The tooth all went into a, you know, biohazard container. But he, you know, gave this guy another tooth and said, here you go, here's your tooth back. Um, the guy was absolutely terrified. And when ISIS came in, they scapegoated the Yazidis for a lot of shit. Um, there's this whole thing about something, the mountains, they, I can't remember the mountain they drove a bunch of them up onto, but it was this waterless 
uh, rough country that was easily defensible, but everyone was dying of thirst up there. I mean, tens of thousands of Yazidis died, and unfortunately the Yazidis were also picked out by ISIS uh, as excellent targets for, you know, recreational jihadic rape, you know, where they'd be uh, sold in markets as slaves, um, the women would. And so the Yazidis show up in, uh, you know, uh, in Lovecraftian writing as close to uh, the great old ones. And in fact, the Haunter of the Dark has certain aspects about it that are very close to descriptions of Malak Tus, the peacock angel who only appears in a room of utter darkness. You, that's why the Yazidis keep candles lit in all their shrines. So there's light all the time. And they're like, well, why wouldn't you want your God to appear? Why wouldn't you just snuff the candles? And they're like, no, no, he is too terrible. Have you have you heard the descriptions of God that you get in the, the Old Testament? Or like what happens yeah, when an angel exactly. appears? Exactly. I won't be around for that. Exactly. It is too terrible to apprehend. Your eyes will melt out of your head. Don't look at you can't look at the divine. I'm super happy we're having this conversation because um Right before the Azidi started being in the news because of the whole ISIS thing, there was a, a splat book for a game called Eclipse Phase that had them as uh, a group of dwellers in this um, this wasteland on Mars that had been infected with a, a version of some kind of um, psychosurgic virus that caused them to be physically compelled to live in what's essentially the zone from Roadside Picnic. Oh, okay, yes. That if they ever that if they were if they were to ever leave it leave it they'd be inexplicably drawn back to it by these horrifying visions, and had sort of culturally mediated that to um, and they're like they're like they're like super friendly guys they're like basically the only people in the zone you can hang out with because everyone else is kind of an asshole, <laughs> mm-hmm. but if you ask them hey what's that transmitter you got over there they say oh hey cool check check this out and then they give you the bug. Well, the, uh, they're in the mythos, right? And uh, I thought, and here I am right in the but I, there, I did not want to commit blood libel again on the Yazidis like William Seabrook did or like anybody else had, or Lovecraft did, frankly, uh, writing them up as the villains in horror at Red Hook. Um, they've, you know, had enough, frankly. So I do not have the problem that comes boiling up out of the past attach itself. Uh, to the Yazidis. Um, but there is an option in the scenario where the problem could attach itself to the Yazidis and that sort of, uh, in that classic, hey, you sure are being beaten on really horribly. How'd you like me to snuff out all your enemies for you? Kind of thing. Um, you guys read uh, The Curse of the Darkness by David Drake? Mm, it, is a, so. it is a, like David Drake, who wrote Hammer Slammers and all that military sci-fi, wrote one of the best Lovecraftian mythos stories ever. And it's called Been Curse the Darkness, as in better to light a candle, right? And the basic plot of the story is, why would anyone join up with the mythos? Why would you become a cultist, right? For what possible motivation? And what happens is he sets the story in King Leopold II's Belgian Congo Free State, right? where the Western mercenaries come in and chop everyone's hand off for not making their latex quota, you know, and freely rape and murder the locals 
you know, to their heart's content and, you know, all the horrors of uh, Conrad's heart of darkness are being inflicted on the locals by the European interlopers and their, you know, um, African, yeah, they're African mercenaries. And you very quickly understand why someone would turn to the mythos just by facing the horrors that humans have inflicted on each other. And you, you know, when you get a look at how terrible humanity can be without supernatural intervention, why wouldn't somebody reach out to something in the name of stopping it? Um, there's a short story I wrote, I think it's called War Stories, about um, Delta Green guys. It's sort of the question of, you know, why do we do this job? Why are we bothering? You know, where are we, where is it getting us? And the answer is the guy tells a story about going to Rwanda in the 90s, you know, to track down the mythos thing that was causing the Rwandan genocide to happen. Obviously, it was, it had to be, you know, Narathotep, or it had to be, you know, Yogg-Sothoth. I mean, this kind of bloodletting had to be attached to some sort of supernatural source. And the answer is, is they go down there and they can't find anything. It's just people. It's just people being horrible. Well, I've always tried to show humans as the real enemy, so that's good. Well, it's the, the, the answer is, why do you do this job for Delta Green? So that we, as a species, will have an opportunity to commit a Rwandan massacre again in the future. Because if the mythos, if the great old ones ever come back, that's not going to be an option because we're going to be gone. We're going to be extinct. Best case scenario, we remain the ugly, overly excitable, adrenaline-soaked, pea-brained apes that we are who smash each other's head in over the least provocation. That's your best case scenario. That's what you're fighting for. I'm glad we sort of naturally got around to that, uh, Glancy, because this is a thing we have in our documents. Get Glancy to say the, the Rwanda thing again. <laughs> Get him to say the Rwanda thing. Glancy, did you see that um, our friend David Tormson was provoked by your article about the French anti-mythos group oh, yeah. into writing, like, um, into, into specifically writing an anti-mythos group for Burundi? No, I did not. Uh, I did not see that. He ra he ran uh, one of the scenarios here, and it was absolutely superb on the night of the Opera Discord. Uh, he uh, because because he he he, t he he liked your article except for the part where um, uh, you said that you know should Burundi have one? And he was like, I'll fucking give you Burundi. And so he 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 looked at he looked at you know what what characteristics this country have. It's like well, um, it's like a lot of kind of less developed countries where law enforcement is walking around with AK-47s and essentially has no resources but a free reign to do whatever it wants as long as it doesn't antagonize people who can shoot back. But, mm -hmm. they're, but they're also very religious. They have a, they have a, a cult. So he comes up with this culturally mediated, you know, organization that believes we need to go out and make sure that witchcraft and the devil don't get too much of a foothold in public life while also keeping in mind that we are as a society quite vulnerable to witch hysteria and we need to make sure to root out the fakes as well. Well, that's, um, you know, the, uh, honestly, um, uh, that's fantastic. Uh, the, the, the times that somebody has come up with good new material, uh, for Delta green have always been, they, if they can, uh, make a good cultural argument, well, uh, a, a part in the world, seeing a sliver, of the mythos, you know, not, 
not necessarily that they've got a stack of Necronomicons back at the office, but that they can, they have perceived a sliver of this unnatural world and recognize it as being um, something that is a physical, genuine threat uh, and has to be dealt with. Like, um, uh, or, or if they can connect it, I'm always having with someone can connect it to some, um, some good old mythos stories like uh, uh, Warren did with M. Epic, where he came up with the Canadian material based on short stories by Derleth and, um, shoot, what's the other guy? Um, you know, earlier Wendigo stories, you know, that were mostly based around journals of RCMP officers, right? There are covered journals of, of uh, Mounties up in the Yukon and the Northwest Territories uh, talking about these cults and this, you know, uh, evil god or entity that's a storm god and the locals, uh, you know, sort of offer, give offerings to. Um, once he was able to connect it to actual, uh, you know, Algernon Blackwood and, and uh, August Durlitz stories, I was like, well, good. I mean, you know, Delta Green came out, uh, Shadow Rensman. That was all the opening we needed. So uh, we've got multiple Mountie stories about Ithaqua. Then I guess that's what the, I guess that's what the Canadian version is going to be most interesting. The other really good group he wrote is set in North Korea. <laughs> you play as you play as as the the North Korean government, and you're not anti-mythos. You're pro-mythos because you have to hoard as much of it as possible of the unusual methods of our own style. Mm. Well, are you familiar with the, um, let's see, the, the Falun Gong in China? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Chinese came up with something that sounded like a mythos-busting organization. Yes, so, so, so the same guy, the same guy, David Tormson, when he, you can, go, you can go and read this on the Fairfield Project, when he did the Chinese anti-mythos organization, he explicitly said it under the United Work, the United Work Front Department's um, Administration for Religious Affairs. Hmm. There's a, there's a, they had a, an amazing nickname, like literally like Room 106 or something, that, that, that the organization was created to beat up on the Falun Gong uh, and created. And now, and now the, the Uyghurs and the, um, yeah. the Tibetans who worship the Buddha who's not um, sanctioned by the Chinese government, the one who's not the, the, the Dalai Lama rather than the, the, the Pachin Lama? Um, I don't remember what the, well, I do know the Chinese have a, a parallel Lama. I remember the, the title of the parallel. There, I, Anti-pope. I mean, essentially, it's the it's the PRC's anti-pope for their uh, Tibetan. So that's the other one is is Catholics who who um, worship oh, it yes. is not approved by the because the government asserts a right to choose um, like what what the the leaders of the Catholic subunits are supposed oh, to yeah. be. Yeah, there there is a communist-approved Catholic church that I do not believe is pope-approved. Um, but um, yeah, the uh, there's a number of religious political police organizations that have drifted around over the years. Uh, South Africa had one uh, that was, uh, you know, super annoying because uh, they started off, I think I mentioned it in the same article, they started off being uh, uh, interested in crimes that were committed with occult or, you know, native belief, uh, tribalistic, shamanistic beliefs as the motive crimes involving the murder of uh, twins or the killing of albinos or the 
Um, Stoning of witches. Yeah, exactly. And then before they were done, um, it got assumed by officers who were deep into the uh, formed Dutch church of South Africa. And they were just looking, they were just listening to albums backwards for, you know, satanic talk. You know, it, it, it went off into a very uh, Eurocentric concept of the devil and, you know, stopped being what it was supposed to be, which was, um, you know, using anthropology to sort crimes committed for traditional uh, mythology or traditional medicine, witchcraft reasons, and I, which I thought was a, you know, I mean, I, I saw something showing these officers from Kenya who were busting poisoners, who were poisoning children who were believed to be bad spirits or possessed. If somebody in the family is getting sicker, much in the same way that European peasants would, you know, once a disease hits, everyone looks around for the corpse that they can call a vampire and blame the disease outbreak on. Apparently, there's some mythology in, in, in various West African cultures about um, kind of like kind of like doppelgangers, kind of like changelings, you know. And you have to kill the changeling. Speaking I remember of which, that. In, I remember that in, in things fall apart, they would. Um, oh yeah. They say that yeah. twins are twins are super not okay in the in the Ebo culture. Yeah, and you got to expose them. You got to just take them out and leave them because otherwise it'll bring disaster. You know. Like with the and, the, the Spartans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but um, as far as, well, anyway, back up. I guess um, uh, let's back up and go. We well, we've discussed atrocities. Discussed. Uh, Attempts to create a parallel mythos or investigation organs, which again I'm not completely opposed to, was, uh, particularly when they're done at low level. Um, the uh, the TV series um, first season of um, what was it called True Detective kind of woke me up to the idea that you could have a law enforcement organized supernatural story, you know, um, where it's just a couple of guys. No, it's the player characters, uh, five or six of them, using their local resources rather than something. Again, the, the, the plan is always to avoid the making it too easy, avoid the push-button, men-in-black sort of trope, everything's super easy. Plus, um, if you've got a real small group, then you come up with like four NPCs and you've got your whole group. Yeah. Because having exactly. fun NPCs is like 90% of having a good group. <laughs> There's always that problem with the player character. Go out. Okay, who's staying with the car? Because God knows when we're running out of here with our asses and a dark young of shoved nigger stomping through the forest behind us. Players know that if they didn't leave a player or somebody with the car. Yeah, this was one of the first subjects we ever discussed on this show. Was yeah. was like how do you was lead, lead, do you have to leave a guy outside the building to make sure you don't get ambushed when you leave and then does that guy even get to play the game? Yeah, you know, we brought up like the social contract of like the table like that's boring as shit. Like I'm gonna sit in a car and total my thumbs while everybody else goes to go to a cool adventure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I straight up tell players when I start a game, you know, hey, I introduce myself. Here's what we're doing. Uh, I will never make you leave someone in the car, uh, so you don't need to. And I will not ambush you in that way. I'll find another one. <laughs> but you don't need to have someone sit out the game just because it's the right thing to do. Like it's a sensible thing to do from a tradecraft perspective. Yeah, that, that that's that's always hard. And um I can't say that I've been I have been 
flexible enough to allow that, but I should be um, for a number of reasons. Certain in, in certain other what do you call them genres, um, I'm certainly a lot more flexible. You know, like pulp. You know, they're in something that's a uh, a lot more four color adventure as opposed to the the never ending nasty of Delta Green. Yeah, I, I would um I would certainly give a lot more stuff because again it's it is part of that just what you said the, the social contract of the table absolutely yeah one of the things that drew me into delta green as a game was the conspiratorial tone of it all uh i really mm-hmm. wanted to play like a good spy game that also had some good gotcha moments in it and uh i think that you are one of the person responsible in uh, at least earlier iterations of the game for uh, there being a lot of tradecraft in it am i wrong in that that's pretty accurate um i certainly did all in the first books i did all of the um uh voca- the, all the glossary and i did the whole thing at the end of the book about all the government agencies and their missions and their you know manpower and budgets and things like that um that was all me the first time through um uh, and I'm a little surprised at how much information I was able to get back in the age before 9-11. Well, it's before the internet, um, like mainstream too, huh? Oh, yeah. Most of what I got that's in the back of that book is from, there was a federal library or federal archive at um, the uh, University of Florida. And I would go down there with those giant uh, bookcases that, you know, are on tracks and they have the big wheel on the side so you can... Yeah, yeah, we got those at work. Yeah. and. Um, you know, I would pull out congressional records, uh, you know, and find budget numbers uh, and find manpower numbers and headquarters numbers for various agencies. Uh, and it was also part of a job search because there was a time when I was hoping to get in there and uh, be part of the deep state and undermine the, the elected uh, officials. That was totally you're my plan. You're, you're doing your part. I'm trying my best. Um, but, um, yeah, that uh, that was an option. I had done... When John originally contacted me, well, I'd sent him some stuff on integrating the old UFOlogy Men in Black stuff into Call of Cthulhu games. Uh, I wasn't pitching it as the players would be the Men in Black, but maybe these Men in Black guys show up and give the Call of Cthulhu investigators a job. You know, they become the Mr. Johnson who uses the players as a mind detective you know, sends them into the weird situation to, to recover the lost artifact or bring the book back or whatever. Sure. And, Which is, uh, it's funny because you present uh, Saucer Watch as the canary in the coal mine for Delta Green agents at a later date. Uh, you have got it in one. Correct. So um, uh, that idea stayed alive for a while. But um, John looked at that and said, eh, better wait till the next issue issue seven of the unspeakable oath comes out the next issue was oh my god it's delta green so i asked about you know doing some of the work for him um would you need a guide to federal agencies that players could come from and he says well, that's exactly what i need and i was like well here's my job search yeah. basically everything in the back of the original book was my job search and i just handed that over john was like uh what else you got so that's how the writing started. But yeah, I included most of that stuff. And I, I certainly did the um, Alphonse's Axioms for Agents, uh, that should have, which came up in The Unspeakable Oath as well. Um, yeah, I, um, 
there's the idea there's certain ideas about tradecraft that are just absolutely fascinating to me um uh in, in espionage about coming up with a lie and the tiny number of props that you need to sell the lie right um there's a marvelous bit in the russia house the um john mccarr novel where this woman gives a manuscript to a uh, guy at a book fair in moscow a british civilian you know guy who's not a spy um but he's essentially been given a manuscript which is all this technical data saying that russian icabms don't work it's a huge intelligence coup and she tries to get it out of the country by giving it to this guy at a book fair who's not there and this guy takes it for him but as he's looking through it he starts to get an idea of what he's looking at and so he's going to be in moscow for a couple more days so he takes the manuscript and he puts it in the trash can in his hotel room so if the kgb ever kicks the door in he can go it was stupid. I threw it away. She's a crank. You know, I didn't know what it was. It just seemed stupid to me. So I threw it in the trash and there it is in the trash. And, you know, there was a couple of things that he did about how to take it out of the country in a way that looked like it had been accidentally packed, you know, with other stuff. Um, and little, little things like that always sort of amazed me. And, uh, the, the, the level of, uh, you know, that we have grownups. Uh, who have spent their careers uh, figuring out ways to obfuscate and do crime, essentially, uh, for the government. You know, uh, our very own uh, trade, uh, paid and traded, uh, tradecraft trained uh, criminals, which is what, you know, most espionage essentially is, is crime. Um, whether it's, you know, bribing officials or carrying too much money across the border or whatever. Um, so yeah, that part of the, uh, that part of it was fascinating to me. Yeah. I went to, uh, some of the, uh, espionage museums in Washington, DC, and I went to one in Berlin and they both had like a bunch of really cool stuff. And it's just, it's just like you said, it's government sanctioned crime, whether it's like theft, you know, they have all these different mm -hmm. like, false bottoms for, you know, stealing documents or for concealing Smuggling. old canisters and. Uh, smuggling people across the border from East Germany into West Germany. But one of the one of the questions that we had uh, written on our document, we don't have a whole lot, but one of them was, how do you get players at the Delta Green table into that sort of tradecraft mindset? There needs um, as much as is fun for them. As much as is fun for them, um, I'd love for them to do stuff like that. Um, uh, I I listen to. Gosh, uh, the guys from Yogsathon.com uh, did an actual play of um, Masinarathotep. And everywhere they went and everyone they talked to, the first words out of their mouths is, you know, we're the good friends of Jackson Elias and we're looking into the cult that murdered him. And nine times out of ten, they were talking to the cult. Murder, yeah, it's just right? that, uh, hello, uh, I'm the person who is now your enemy. Will you please try and undermine me and kill me at every turn now that I've announced my presence also, to you? Also, here's, here's my card, and it tells you... I'll be in this hotel room. Uh, I'm also a very hard sleeper. 
Yeah. Um, so what really got me, and I just thought, you know, going back in time and looking at that, you know, game, I think, you know, I would never approach anything directly. You just want to ask the Columbo question on the way out the door, you know, like, oh, one more thing, you know, you have and to come up with thing. a, you, you, you come up with a persona uh, to go into the juju shop, you go different, uh, you use false identities, you use disguise, anything to uh, not light yourself up with a big target on your back. Um, because the firepower of the cults was just so massive, and you've got your 12 hit points. And that's still true in, in sort of Delta Green. I, I would love it if players would, you know, come at situations sideways and not take it head on and not kick the door in going right away. Uh, if they want to, you know, uh, find uh, surveillance options, uh, you know, that they've seen in movies or seen in museums or such and apply those to the game. That's, to me, that's even better if they can come. Because again, the one uh, advantage that the players have as Delta Green is they have some access to this gear and they have possibly the element of surprise. They can watch the enemy without revealing themselves they can choose their moment to strike and be effective. So it's a bit like a game of hide-and-seek with bazookas, right? Um, if you take your shot and miss, you have revealed your position, and you're going to get hit with the counter-strike, right? And they whistle up a dark young or a hunting har or something. Um, you want to hit them before they have a chance to blink. Um, in, I think the line was... Um, if you ever find yourself in a fair fight, your tactics suck. You should never be in a fair fight. They should always be asleep. They should always be looking the other direction. You know, uh, they should be always be taking a crap. You know, when you hit them is is, is best. And I don't think you know. And 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 in some cases, it doesn't provide the entertainment bar that so often you know are a thing in role playing games. Anyways, uh, uh, tradecraft is always something I problem with delta green where people say i don't know how to play a soldier i do not know how to play an agent i do not know how to play a, a law enforcement officer or a spy and my thought is you don't know how to be a wizard either do you harry but you somehow figured that out you know for D D. um people you, you would hope that people would be moving towards delta green because they have some contact with the genre of espionage and whatnot and that's what's got their attention um uh, you know as, as long as it's not you know I, I, we're, we're not doing nick fury we're not doing james bond or matt helm you know but we are doing if i was gonna you know pull out spies that we're most attached to i would list guys like um you know it's it's like out of sakaro or it's out of true detective or it's out of um any of the Harry Palmer films uh, from like Funeral in Berlin or The Empress File. Um, that's what we were, you know, that's the kind of stuff we were looking for. Um, like uh, Redford in Three Days of the Condor, or preferably the players would be better off being Max von Sydow in Three Days of the Condor. But um, that's what we're sort of, uh, the sort of mood we were going for in this. Um, in any case, uh, I, I've 
recently am rewriting an enormous amount of material that's uh, going on in, uh, in, in in iconoclasts, and one of the things I've had to do is adjust it for just exactly that sort of problem. Uh, when I sent out the play test, some people took to it like a fish to water. They wanted to be, they wanted to be the case officer. They wanted to run agents. They wanted to gather information from other agencies and they wanted to, you know, trade, uh, a shipment of, um, you know, starlight scopes to the, uh, Kurdish Peshmerga in order to get access to a safe house that they had in, you know, uh, Mosul, and they wanted to do that kind of stuff. And some players did not. They just wanted to be parachuted in to the situation, essentially with uh, all the back work done. Um, they were unhappy with the the way clues were gathered um, because the scenario, a lot of the scenarios, about gathering clues about the unnatural out of the regular traffic of military intelligence that is just a blur. Kevin, it sounds like you just described the two playtests you ran. Yeah, yeah it's so a ran, night and day well, difference. I've actually ran three playtests. Um, one was basically slid all the way to case officer, and one was slid mm-hmm. all the way to parachute us in, and then the third one, which I'm actually midstream of, um, there, I think last time, last session, it just clicked with them, how they could start using the system to start getting the things they need, which is awesome. So I think it's going to be right in the middle. Because when we when we played it, we were basically like lawyers. We yeah, were, we were we were super very hands off, very, very risk averse at the beginning. We 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 held off on like moving in like to the last possible second, just because we wanted to be absolutely certain. And frankly, you should. I mean, I, what I'm imagining, you have this puzzle, and you assemble the puzzle slowly and carefully, and that puzzle draws a target on what you're supposed to hit. And let me just say, there's a lot of flaws with Iconoclast that I think you identified last time we talked about it, but mm-hmm. it is for that reason that it is one of my favorite things for New Delta Green, because more than any of the other adventures, it captures the feeling of assembling a puzzle over time, because a lot of stuff for the, the new game is, like, you got to get there right now, and you got to start cracking skulls, because this mystery is not going to wait for you to solve to solve it, yeah. whereas this well, one is, is more of a slow burn. What I've sort of ended up doing is instead of puzzle pieces, I have re sort of re sculpted the clues into three by five cards. And each three by five card has a thing that you've got like the video. And then around the edge of the card is the leads that the video can produce. And if you really wanted to put it on a, a cork board and tie strings <laughs> between. I was just thinking that. that. Then that would be ideal, right? Um, so the players can actually, you know, go, okay, what leads to what, what, you know, how many things, how many, how many strings go into this three by five card. That's how I've tried to reassemble this thing so that players could feel themselves building the puzzle, uh, rather than just a bunch of information that they're getting that they don't see how it fits together. Um, I, I think that a lot of, a lot of people couldn't, there's so much information. And I've also have to, I'll be honest, simplify it way down. So right. it's a lot we, more, a lot less convoluted. Um, but you could build, you will be able to put those cards on the table next to each other where they connect 
and hopefully builds your your picture of what's happening and what you have to do to stop it uh that I way i gotta say more props is uh i'm all in on game props. yeah they're awesome will has a story about giving, giving people a big stack of documents for i don't remember which scenario it is oh is it, it for it? artifact zero artifact yeah okay mm-hmm. so uh i don't know if you saw uh, but somebody on the mailing list before it got moved over uh made a whole bunch took all of the like the autopsies and all of the the the, the personal histories and stuff from Artifact Zero, but all the, the people who disappeared and got mummified in The Rock and turned them into like like handouts with cool little department seals on them and everything. And my some some of the best games I've ever run has been me going, all right, so we're going to play this game. So you go to this the dusty basement of the FBI field office in, in Montana and here's this stack of documents. Here, here oh. you go. I'm going to go upstairs and get the pizza. And I come back, and they've got the documents spread out. They're taking, they're writing things down. They're like, okay, so this guy looks like this skeleton here, and that guy. Oh, oh my God, what's going on here? And then there's this slow dawning realization as they they put together the pieces themselves and figure out, you know, what's what's act, where these bodies have disappeared to. And that is that is ideal. That is an ideal setting. Um, and 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 that was what people loved about masks. It's what people loved about uh, uh, any of these prop heavy uh, scenarios is that you actually are holding clues in your hands yeah it's all right there and you're putting it together in real time well folks i have got to run and go up from a uh, local light rail station so uh ask one last question and uh I, oh, just as a way as a good way to uh to kind of do a, a sign off sort, sort of thing what uh what's the next thing uh people people might be might expect from to come out of your uh, depraved head well next? The, the 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 three things i'm working once uh, Iconoclast is done, um, the, uh, I'm going to finish up the dog material, which is the Cult of Nodens. Um, I've called it the Dog Soldiers because do- the Dog Soldiers were, were a military cult or a military society amongst uh, certain Plains Indians. I think it's the Cheyenne, but I can't remember. But they were the guys who were going to resist the European invasion uh, to the death. Um, but I'm also calling it the dog soldiers because uh, Nodens has hounds has a relationship to healing and hounds crippled soldiers. And the idea is Nodens as a recruiter of crippled soldiers, mangled mutilated soldiers in order to have them continue to fight um, against Narlathotep, but not necessarily in the most productive ways. Um, it's also something where mangled Delta green characters could find themselves being recruited. Did you run this for, um, RPPR at one point? Yes, I I believe I did. They, them having something very close to that. Yeah. And, um, they eventually ended up having a sniper duel with a sniper that once they killed him, he was a, he was a quadriplegic. They found when they got to the body, they found a man who had, no arms, no legs, uh, and was being fed through a feeding tube because he'd lost his mandible and was right. Like uh, Johnny got his gun. Yeah, exactly in the Metallica music video. But yeah. but but this this idea that that um, Nodens gives you these magic powers, but if if you displease him in any way, he just takes them away and you just fucking die because you like a piece of your you, you just own do, a piece of your skull now. Yes, exactly. 
And worst case scenario, I mean, there's no escape. I mean, he'll he'll leave you stranded in the form that you were, but there's there's no escape into the dreamlands. Because to 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 have these powers, you have to mutilate yourself uh in the way you were mutilated in the waking world to your dream form. That's cool. Because I I I like Dreamlands a lot. I think that People say they don't fit with the tone of Delta Green. I think they totally do because I think that escapism that lets that that you become addicted to is super thematic. Yeah, it's yeah as a way to get away from. It's, the an, it's an ugly mirror to my own RPG habits. The other two things I'm working on is there's a ten part campaign that's set in every decade, well, a bunch of decades of the 20th century and the early 21st century. Is there any yeah. way that I could watch a piece of this campaign using the internet? Um. Uh, the guys at RPPR, the guys at RPPR did have played a couple of them. One set in the 30s and one set in 1970. Has anyone in this room played one of those games? At Necronomicon? You did? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but but yeah, it's uh, that one is designed so every scenario provides a clue or clues that you're going to use to solve the problem at the end. Just like Final Revelation, but with an actual solution. Yeah, and as you're going along from each game, maybe your character can play in two games. He's, you know, 20 years is not too long. But eventually, replacement characters come in. Um, And it's more about the clue pile you're building up over the course of 100 years, essentially. It's final. Just worship Nodens and it'll kill more Alzheimer's. Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you uh, the idea behind the scenario, the, the, the threat changes over this. Uh, the Great Old One does not change, but the threat around the Great Old One changes over the years. And the threat of the Great Old One only gets worse with the advancing, the advancement of human technology. The last one I'm working on uh, is going to be set in, set in Greenland. It's uh, based off a radio play called The Thing on the Forable Board. Essentially about, you know, where now the ice pack is moving back, we can now drill in the Arctic. Somebody drills down into the black caverns of Kenyan or uh, Nakai and uh, wakes up uh, uh, wakes up some uh, some uh, Sathagwa action, and it, it's going to quickly spill out onto uh, Greenland. And Greenland has the population of a mid-sized town. If things start to go pear-shaped, there's not a lot of people. Isn't they There's all concentrated in like one major uh, metropolitan There's a small, area? Sm- there is one major town or port, but mostly it's small little ports, fishing ports that could be. When the problem starts to move, it's really going to And it, um, it's kind of like, you know, uh, what's his name? Looking at the clock on his computer, how long till organism takes over Earth? Well, Grimley. Wilford Brimley. The diabetes guy. Yeah. So listen, I got to fly. I'll talk to you guys later. Uh, I got to just. Gotta Thank take you. This was right superb. Now. I'm glad you liked it. Chat on you later, fellas. Thank you. Adios. Adios. Wait, wait. Did he just get. <laughs> <laughs> he stayed connected. He just got up and left from his computer. <laughs> <laughs> He's still sitting in the chat. God bless you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>